Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And today we are very fortunate to be joined by a renowned uh, scientist and also a local, a local San Diegan who is benefiting as I am from the end of May gray, June gloom, July, we didn't fry. It's finally clear. It's August 2nd, and I'm joined by Eric, Dr. Eric Topol. How are you today, Dr. Topol? Brian, uh, it's so great to be with you. Thank you for having me with you. I've uh, I followed you for years. Obviously, you're a renowned uh, scientist, cardiologist, executive uh, vice president uh, at Scripps Institution, which is not to be confused with Scripps Institute of Oceanography. I made that mistake in the past. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we had on uh, uh, Luca Leggiani, who's at Scripps Institution. He works on origin of life. We talked about origin of life, Primo Levi. This is Life Month on the Into the Impossible podcast. Uh, but before we get into uh, all these physics and kind of nerd out on physical sciences, I want to do what I do Eric, with all my guests who write books, and you've written at least three that I've read, um, I like to play a game called Judging Books by Their Cover, because what other prior do you have to go on when you see a book? Uh, and so I want to ask you, uh, this book, Deep Medicine, I have your other book, The Patient Will See You Now uh, in Another Room, but this book, Deep Medicine, what is the origin of the title and the subtitle and the cover design, which seems to have a menacing android with an apple? <laughs> right. Well, Deep Medicine was easy because... Um, this is about how deep learning the subtype of AI will affect the future of medicine and healthcare. And, uh, you know, I think in many ways, one of my influencers was Gary Kasparov, who had a book, Deep Thinking. Uh, and it's a natural, it's deep everything, as you know, Brian, uh, all the, all the uh, different uh, methods and acronyms, everything surrounding the deep learning era is deep. And what's, the, the play on words here is that rather than everybody thinking about the AI impact, it's much more about restoring humanity, going deep in terms of the human connection. And that's what I think is the, the counterintuitive notion. So then that picture of the android with the apple was trying to, to capture that sense is that we, we can make with AI uh, medicine better healthier and it's restore the human connect, which is the whole notion that most people haven't realized that the gift of time, that if you harness what AI can do between um, all the different things like the uh, assimilation of the data, processing the data that no human being uh, can actually keep up with anymore. Uh, so that, and the idea that you, for example, you know, doctors are and clinicians are at keyboards, typing and not even looking at patients and you know why why that well, you would use voice and natural language processing and get synthetic notes and there's a long long list of things that would make that patient doctor relationship back to the way it was supposed to be back where it was years ago when I uh, first uh, got out of medical school yeah and uh, I want to also point out that <clears throat> I know that you have uh, many awards and honors, uh, in addition to, uh, your leadership at Scripps Institute, uh, institution. Uh, but I want to also point out that you were named, if I'm not mistaken, 2017, uh, Sharpie highlighter, uh, man of the year for all your highlights that you do in your tweets. And 
I decided I would start emulating you uh, when I heard you speak. Uh, you, you are perhaps the most prolific highlighter in human history. And I say that uh, based on your meeting you in real life and seeing you on Twitter, where you've uh, been a godsend to many of us who are data-driven and like to think about data, et cetera, um, uh, more or less continuously. And I do want to get into the opportunities that you presented to me and to the audience back at Scripps when you gave a lecture when this book came out. But also, yeah, as you mentioned, in, in The Patient Will See You Now, you kind of had this this uh, depiction at one point, I remember, in a talk you gave, you know, of like a doc, you know, in the olden days, it was like a doctor looking at a chart and, and the patient sitting there talking. And now it's like a doctor typing into a computer. <laughs> and I think about that with education in that, you know, a thousand years ago in Bologna, Italy, the first university was started. And you're also a professor of, of, of uh, at, at Scripps as well. And uh, those first professors, you know, Think of how much has changed. It was a man with a piece of rock scraping on another piece of rock, you know, writing down something. And then there were students uh, were transferring it to their pieces of rock or papyrus. I don't know what they had back then, to be honest, Eric. But but the point is, nothing has changed in education. It to like if you were explaining it, you know, maybe yeah, we have these devices, and now the comp- the, the kids are recording instead of typing notes or writing notes by hand. But um, but it strikes me as how little has changed in hundreds, if not thousands of years. And, and, and uh, you know, we're kind of at this level as I had on Carl Wyman, who won the Nobel Prize in 2001, who's now turned his life to educational overhaul. And he said, you know, he claimed we're at the point in education that's equivalent to bloodletting with leeches. But I want to ask you, what, what is medicine at? You know, um, how come medicine is so resistant? Is it all lawyers? Is it is it because of lawyers, or why is it so that we haven't we don't have an artificial <clears throat> intern in the room with all my doctors? Yeah, great question, Brian. Um, you know, I think one of the big reasons why medicine is so sclerotic, so. Uh, difficult to change. And as you say, many things are a throwback to more than two millennia, uh, the era of Hippocrates, where the doctor knows best about everything and is in command and control of everything. And so letting go is difficult. And it's not just a legal thing. It's much more, you know, it's this thing of I'm in charge. I'm trained to be in charge. And and also I'm tra- going to live in an analog world. <laughs> Uh, part of that analog world was that the first foray into the digital world in medicine were these electronic health records, which has been have been an object, uh, you know, a, a, a total fiasco because what it's done is it basically uh, really undermined that relationship, uh, as you've already touched on. And um, the problem is that that's not a good proxy for where digital and where things like AI can take us. Uh, and so a lot, of, a lot of physicians where they were forced to change, they, their health system said, you must use electronic records. We're getting rid of paper records. And it just, it was all done for billing purposes. It wasn't done to, you know, provide better medical care. So with that, the, the first chance to adopt the digital era in healthcare, it backfired mm. uh, in many respects. So we, between what you mentioned, the medical legal issues, the control issues, the uh, bad experiences, sour experiences, it's been hard to get a, a, any real substantive change in medicine. Mm. And I look at, you know, the work of your colleague and friend, Atul Gawande, and his book, The Checklist Manifesto, you know, there is kind of rationalizing, systematizing, and I'm a private pilot, I fly little mm. tiny Cessnas around. But, but the point being, you know, we've learned because the lessons are written in blood and aviation, 
you know, that, that you have to learn from the mistakes of others because you won't live long enough to make them all yourself, as Rickover said. But I guess the thing that strikes to me is even more similar is that like artificial intelligence could be in the cockpit too. In other words, every time I fly, you know, from Montgomery Field or whatever, and I fly around uh, to go to, I don't know, uh, Los Angeles or something like that, I have to tune in by hand a radio dial and I have to listen uh, analog single bit, you know, single channel communication to the weather there because there could be a broken down plane on the runway. And so it changes every hour. And, uh, and then I have to write that down by hand. Like, what if I had an, you know, and I won't say the word, but it sounds like Alexandria or, or, or Cyril. And I had one of these devices in the cockpit with me that was connected because it's connected to the internet through three, you know, 5G or whatever. Um, and it strikes me as, as just, as you say, sclerotic because that would save lives. I mean, there's no doubt that there have been lives lost because either someone didn't check, didn't tune the right frequency, um, didn't know there was something that uh, prevented them from being able to land, for example. And probably in medicine too. There's people that, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, Brian, you're, you're really apt to point that out because the problem we have with medicine today is, you know, this, this term precision medicines used a lot and that doesn't mean much. If you keep making the same mistakes, that's very precise. We need accuracy. And that's actually the, the short term big benefit of AI Deep neural networks are, you start to see all the trends, particularly with medical images, of making things far more accurate. That is, when you get the processing that can be done uh, through training neural nets of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of, whether it's mammograms or x-rays, CAT scans, I mean, any type of medical image, you can do things that no one would have anticipated in terms of revving up accuracy. And when you add the human oversight, then you've got kind of the best of both worlds. So that's why medicine is in the midst, uh, I would say in the early midst, of a shakeup because mm-hmm. the machine plus uh, the clinician is going to be the, the new look rather than just the clinician because accuracy is not anywhere near it needs to be. In fact, the National Academy of Medicine has documented that each of us will have a serious medical error happen to us in our lifetime. Mm. You know, at least one. That's pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then when you also think about the 40% of doctors, when a patient dies and they have an autopsy, and before the autopsy, they say 40% of the time, that is, they know exactly what was the cause of death. And the autopsy, 40% of the time, shows they're absolutely wrong. <laughs> so we have a lot of hubris, right. a lot of inaccuracy, and we need help. We need to mm-hmm. lean on machines to help us. Yeah. And I think that's something that's, you know, again, in the aviation, the military, they've learned this. I had uh, David Marquet on the podcast last year and he was talking about his book, Turn the Ship Around and Leadership is Language. And he's told me the most dangerous word a leader, a surgeon, a pilot, someone can say is the word right question mark. You know, I say to you, Eric, you know, like I don't I'm not going to suffer from COVID. Right. You know, it's like it's and, and you're in a position of authority it's coercive, it's, it's manipulative, it's, it's um, prone to confirmation bias. And I just wonder, you know, I, I always hearken back to the Talmud, which is the second holiest book in, in Judaism. And the Talmud has a famous phrase, I don't know if you ever heard it, the best doctors go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> because we, we do, and I extend that to PhD doctors of my type. <laughs> so it's not the worst doctor. It's because we, yeah, we we kind of have this this theme that Atul and, and you and have talked about this kind of aura of invincibility, this expert authority bias, 
And, and yet, well, how do you walk the tightrope? Because we need authorities. We live in an anti-scientific age. Um, and yet we, we have a natural desire to also want to be free and have liberty in this country, unlike other countries. Um, and so, yeah, how do you balance that as a doctor, as a public figure, who's perhaps one of the most vocal, you know, kind of, um, you know, supporters of, 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 of uh, the scientific method in the public discourse? How do you balance those two, the competition for liberty on one side and the competition for following experts when it's warranted? Yeah, it's a very important and delicate balance because what I want to see is democratizing medicine. Uh, so many people now can capture their own data and with support of algorithms, they can do doctorless things. But of course, doctors don't want them to do that for the most part. And so we have to let go. And, but we also obviously want to have this stuff validated with scientific method, that it really works, that it, no one's getting hurt, that it you know, leads to the right screening, whether it's skin cancers and lesions or urinary tract infections, skin, um, you know, ear infections of children, uh, heart rhythm. All these things can now be obtained with a reasonable uh, accuracy by a person without a doctor. Right. So this is really where this uh, change, this shift is occurring, because algorithms don't just help clinicians. They help all people if they're used properly. But we have a problem. Our little problem is that so little has been validated. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So we can't be pushing this too hard until we get compelling evidence that it, it works really well. Yeah, I had Dr. Peter Diamandis on last year, and he's famous for let's democratize all these five Ds, you know, probably because his name is Diamandis, has so many Ds in it. <laughs> uh, but, you know, he's obviously on the cutting edge of, of a lot of medical research, but also on, you know, kind of the exponential, all these different exponentials that come into play. Um, and, uh, I, I think it's, it's fascinating that, yeah, we never has there been, you know, misquote Carl Sagan, you know, never has so much data been available to so many people who don't know how to use it. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, uh, you know, there's, 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 you know, it'd be great if we could actually have the kind of supervising agent, not, not, uh, not, um, have to be so hard to, to come about in terms of a trained doctor. Let me ask you a bigger picture question. I want to take you back to, to college and you're sleeping on the, you know, <laughs> chatting with your buddies on the couch in the dorm or maybe you got a, a beverage of your adult variety. And, and I want to speculate, what is, when I say life, you know, when I, what is life to you? There's a famous paper monographed by Erwin Schrodinger, Nobel prize winner for creation of wave mechanics, quantum mechanics. He wrote a monograph. It basically it had some cool things in it, like hinted that there might be some crystal inside life that, that quant, you know, stores information. What is life to you, doctor? Oh, Brian, that's a tough one. Um, you know, there's a recent book by, uh, Carl Zimmer, who's a real good friend and journalist at the New York Times that, you know, 
several hundred pages that gets into this is not an easy answer. I mean, you know, you could say, is a virus life? like That's my next COVID, question. Right? That's my next question. And, and it, <laughs> you could say, well, not really, unless it can get into a host, right? And then, it's a, then it sure is a hell of a life and causing death but of, of the hosts. And, and um, so it's tricky because if, if you want to talk about independent ability to sustain itself versus uh, being able to invade and then basically, you know, hijack a host of any kind. There's lots of fine lines between life here and, and sub-life forms. So I, you know, in the true sense, it would be, you know, that uh, an organism that can sustain itself, replicate itself perhaps. But I think we have to think more broadly than that. And then when I say artificial intelligence, my friend Max Tegmark, uh, um, Tegmark at MIT was on the show. Um, he's a proponent of this concept that he calls life 3.0. Yeah. Actually, artificial intelligence has all the characteristics that could plausibly, from a physicist's point of view, perhaps, be ascribed to a living organism. What do you make of that? Yeah, I think Max's book, uh, 3.0, is actually very provocative. I, I enjoyed it. I haven't met Max, but I certainly think he's a, a sharp thinker. Uh, I don't want to give AGI, which he forecasts will be 2045 with his uh big uh, conference that he pulled together. Uh, if that ever happens, if that ever happens, maybe he'd be right. But right now, you know, I'm not thinking 2045 or beyond that. And I don't know that I would give AGI uh, assigning life uh, potential yet. And we'll have to see whether that actually pans out. You know, one of the things I've gotten interested in is kind of taking the words of the great maestro of physics, Galileo, for the first time making the first ever audio book with some colleague, Carlo Rebelli and others. And we're, when I had the audio, I actually realized that there's no audio book of any of Galileo's works, which is really a tragedy. So I'm rectifying that. But I said, actually, I have, now I have the text. So could I put that into GPT-3? And make artificial Galileo, or as I call them, Galileo, <laughs> and, uh, and and start doing things with it. But but then it started to th- dawn on me that you know, uh, so Einstein, you may or may not know this, he called um, the realization of what's known as the equivalence principle that if you're in free fall, you experience no gravitational force. So even if you're near, you know, that's the sensation that you have when you go over a hill or in a plane or something like that. Or if you're in a rocket in deep space, you're moving at 1G, you can't tell you're not in a gravitational field stationary on the Earth. He called that, uh, Eric, he called that the happiest thought of his life. Hmm. And I started thinking, first of all, could a computer experience happiness, number one? Uh, And then number two, could it even relate? What does it mean to feel like you're free falling? And so I, I agree with you. I'm actually an AI pessimist or GAI pe- Like, I don't think that it will be in the same, as I quote, you know, often you mentioned Kasparov, he was beaten by deep blue. I know computers can now defeat any human in chess. Can they create the game of chess? Can computers eventually come up with new ways of treating, like come up with some new idea? Oh, actually, you have to remove all the mitochondria from every side. I don't know. I'll make it. I, the last thing I had in biology, Eric, was ninth grade. I dissected a frog. I got it all wrong. The frog lived. The frog actually lived. I don't know how. I'm such a failure. But yeah, I mean, are there opportunities for like completely, you know, de novo innovations in the in either machine learning and deep from deep neural networks like you talk about in here, or in AI? Is there any possibility we just think so outside the box, literally the silicon box, that it could really surprise us in the way that Einstein was surprised in, the, in a similar fashion? Well, I think it's speculative. We haven't seen it yet. 
we have seen, you know, amazing things that we have to be imaginative that we can train machines with the right inputs to get outputs that were not envisioned. But what you're getting at is could, could, the autonomous aspect uh, of uh, neural nets to be able to do things that, you know, without any guidance whatsoever. Uh, I don't know about that. I'm much more skeptical that that's going to be happening. But, you know, there are these people that have, you know, the doomsayers like Elon Musk and uh, um, and several others that have basically, you know, gone that direction. You know, it's possible. I don't think we've seen any good evidence of it. But I also would say, you know, right now, deep learning is the vogue. You know, it's, it's the main thing that we harp on. But there are lots of new models that are going to be um, come up with in, in the years ahead. And, you know, anything's possible. We should be open to potential, you know, and watch for that. But I don't see it, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm more like you on this, not having heard your views. <laughs> and uh, one of my favorite chapters in Deep Medicine is a chapter called Deep Empathy. Uh, can you explain what that means for people that haven't read the book? What does Deep Empathy mean? Right. So, you know, you already, in a way, um, uh, came onto this with this assigning human qualities to machines, which is wrong because there's no reason to get anthropomorphic with machines. So they're not going to have, have empathy. You can't, you just can't do that. The, the, that is, I remember in the book, I had a table before that chapter about all the things that humans do that machines can't really do, whether it's yeah. cry or laugh or, you know, have true empathy and, and on and on. But the deep empathy, the, the final chapter, the culmination of the book is how we get back this deep connection between the patient and the clinician, because it's it's what it's all about. That's what the essentiality of medicine. And yeah, you can have help with a machine to get whether you know to get the right diagnosis or even to guide towards the right treatment. But all that is unimportant because when you're sick, you want a human looking after you. You want to know that a human has your back, and so that's deep empathy, having your back having a presence, a trust, all the qualities that are humanoid that we don't have enough of today because we don't have the gift of time. One of my favorite tweets that you had pinned as on your Twitter profile where you've got nigh on 500,000 uh, followers that are rabid and, and love it in the best sense. I, I shouldn't say rabid to a physician. <laughs> <laughs> it could be taken the wrong way. Uh, but, um, but you had a tweet pinned for a long time and it was just your period, medical period data. And, uh, you know, it strikes me that you're one of the more, along with Atul and, and, and others, you know, very patient focused. But I want to take a step back because I teach a lot of pre-meds um, at UCSD in physics. They have to take, you know, physics one series. And I guess, and, you know, they think it's just to get past the MCATs. I, I wish that they would actually learn it in a more uh, provocative and, and actually intellectual fashion. Then, but, you know, we do have to do that. And so it's what they do. I, a friend, actually a friend of a friend who's a famous podcaster in England. He's a doctor, Ali Abdal. He has 2 million followers, you know, on, on, on YouTube. Anyway, he did a survey. He dropped out of being, he was Cam Cambridge trained uh, physician, OBGYN. And he decided he's just going to stop. And he asked, and he, because he became a millionaire, he became a millionaire from YouTube and from, he runs a bunch of courses and had to study for med school and so forth. And he surveyed a bunch of his friends that are doctors and said, if you became a millionaire, um, would you keep practicing? And, and most of the answers, Eric, came back as yes, until the end of the day. 
<laughs> in other words, there's so much dissatisfaction, there's so much burnout, there's so much stress among your fellow physicians that I wonder, like, who speaks for them? And is that a crisis? This crisis of meaning or cri- you know, burnout? What do you make of that? Yeah, I know you're you're spot on about that. So we have a global crisis of burnout, the highest rate of clinical depression, suicides ever in the medical profession, not even just among doctors, but nurses and other disciplines. It's mm-hmm. it's actually horrific. Um, the pandemic has, has um, put medicine in a, a, a bright light in terms of heroes, if you will, but it hasn't gotten over this problem of loss of mission. So the point being here is that when you can't, when you only have seven minutes to see patients and 12 minutes for a new patient that you've never seen before, you, you, you basically are violating why you did this for your life because you did it because you care for people. You want to care for people. You want to look after them and you can't. So that's what leads to profound disenchantment is uh, unable to cope with the system of how you are basically um, supposed to be practicing medicine. That has to change. Um, And the overlords, basically in medicine, unlike your walk of life, are managers, bean counters. And they want you to see more patients in any given time slot. So that doesn't work out too well. So the only way we get over this is that we have to revolt. (laughs) We have to tell the the um, the managers that no we're not doing this anymore we want to look after patients because if we don't do that we it's hard to break this progressive crisis global disenchantment and and depression it, it's been a it's been building you know over many years mm-hmm. And when we think about you know kind of how these students come up and the shortage of, of physicians I had um, uh, Michael Saylor, who's a very big proponent of Bitcoin, not that we're going to get into that, but he's one of them. For and anyway, he started this new university, basically for STEM, and it's called Saylor Academy. And he basically feels like unless you're going to be, you know, like a sculptor or, or you know, major in professional golf, I, I don't know. Well, I'm talking to a doctor, so maybe you can major in professional golf. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> but the point is, like, for at least for not physical interactions, you know, maybe maybe there is some part of the bedside you know manner that you can't teach. But you know, could we could we you know kind of lessen the pressure on the existing cadre of doctors? by having just more and more students get into medicine and by doing so lower the cost of medical school, make it more affordable, make their more trainer, you know, teachers, et cetera. You know, why have Brian Keating, you know, teach physics when you can have Galileo or Einstein using AI and all the words they've ever spoken. Do you see an opportunity or would it make the problem worse to have more people become physicians? Would you just have a greater number of suicides and, and sort of negative mental health outcomes? Well, it's a very good, uh, insightful question. I, you know, the problem is right now the the workforce, the, the the human capital that's being expended is making healthcare uh, unsustainable. Uh, so we have to be smarter about that. And the question is, of course, uh, if we got more frontline people, like you're alluding to, uh, and stop with all these administrators and managers whose role is more questionable. That's one strategy. But the other one is to rely much more on support that we can get from machines that can make each doctor's life so much easier and more accurate. So mm. I think it's a combination of those two, not one or the other. 
And uh, so I think that that you know dovetails nicely into kind of transitioning to rather uh, you know current events. Let's call it current <laughs> events. <laughs> uh, there's been a uh, a perversive worldwide pandemic for the last uh, sixteen or, or more months. I've heard of that. Yeah. <laughs> Are you familiar with this? Because I have a doctor, a friend of mine. Uh, I happen to know Eric Topol, so I can interview. I can put you in touch. But um, well, first of all, I want to get your just as a as a human being. So I remember in January 2020, I'd just been invited to go to a conference in Tibet, of all places, and wow. I was looking forward to. It. I'd never been to to China, to Tibet, and I went to dinner, and I was next to a friend of mine, my friend Mitch, and and he was saying, "You might want to like." hold off on that a little bit because I just heard, you know, China's building this hospital and there's so much uh, far in advance of America that uh, they built the hospital in seven days and it can hold a thousand people. And it also doubles maybe as some other, anyway, I don't want to get into politics, but, but the point was they were uh, like my friend, Mitch, who's not like a global policy, medical health pandemic expert, or, you know, doesn't have the trillion dollar NSA budget, CIA budget, whatever, all these three little DARPA, whatever. He knew about it. He knew it was not a good idea. He knew it was coming to America and Canada. How come we failed so badly to diagnose this? And it wasn't like we didn't know it could happen, but with all the apparatus. In other words, not just like, oh, well, you know, we had a bad president or a good president, whatever. I, again, I'm not political. I'm a political atheist. And I think I got into astronomy, Eric, just to sign up because there are no like Republican constellations. <laughs> There's no Democratic asteroid over there. You know, I love it because I think we need a politics free space as intellectuals in society. But anyway, I, I agree with that. Just like there's not a Democratic or Republican virus either. Right? Yes, exactly. Uh, and so so the, the, the issue here is that um, we were flat footed and uh, the biggest singular problem why the U.S. got so deep into a horrible mess is that we had no testing capability for the first two months of the pandemic here. And so without testing, we watched unknowingly this, the diffuse spread of uh, the coronavirus, you know, everywhere. And so that was the time when you needed to have, it was basically invisible to us. And the only way to see it would have been to do nasopharyngeal swabs and PCR. So, we blew it. And now we're trying to dig out. And, uh, you know, it's just really, when you get that far behind two months, I mean, as you know, talk about exponential stuff, right? You're, you're in deep shit. I mean, <laughs> no, you, and we are still, um, in, in many ways from that. Now, had we been all over it, you know, like Iceland is an example, you say, oh, well, that's just an Island country. It's only got 300,000 people, but Hey, they were testing people randomly before the pandemic ever reached there. That's the way to be, right? Mm -hmm. And so you, you you look at the countries that got to zero COVID and they were basically all over it from the get-go. Now, you could say in the second part of the story, they're all uh, basically naive. They have no immunity. And so they have to also be smart about getting uh, vaccine-induced immunity, but at least to get through and have unscathed. Like, you know, I have a faculty appointment at, University of Auckland in New Zealand, I talk to my colleagues, you know, frequently. And to think that they basically have had a no normal life, never been affected by COVID, except for a few days here and there, because they got all over it from, from the beginning. And they've stayed all over it. And they're also doing well now in the vaccination phase. So there are ways that you, we could have done so much better. Uh, and it was just mismanaged. And I think, you know, our public health resources were gutted you know, systematically gutted over many years. So we were in a poor position to, to, to react. And even mm -hmm. knowing 
you know, when the sequence of the virus was available on January 10th from China, that was the triumph of the American medicine life science community of getting the vaccines in a compressed schedule, all the way, highly successful vaccines, all the way through clinical trials and rolling out within 10 months. That's amazing. So you have, you know, the best and the worst, right? You have what the U.S. is very good at, which is on the life science industry and uh, ingenuity side, but on the public health, pitiful. Yeah, I see that, especially as a parent of young kids and seeing, you know, just kind of the various whipsawing I felt like over the past year and a half and still feeling like, oh, now we've got this Delta variant. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, you talked a little bit about this in a wonderful chat with Sam Harris uh, a couple weeks ago. But I want to ask you, um, like when they say, you know, this is spreading and we have a new wave, et cetera, um, how different in terms of viral, if you just took, you know, the PCR of it, first of all, how do they know it's, you know, if someone goes in the hospital in San Diego, God forbid, and they have COVID, you know, how do they, do they actually test and say, oh, this is a Delta person, not versus an, I mean, do they do that or? Well, in San Diego, we're very lucky because we have, if not the most sequencing, yeah. <laughs> maybe the second most sequencing of any prayer in the country. Right. And so fortunately, our collaboration at Scripps Research with UCSD and Helix and Illumina, mm-hmm. we we're all over this. So we do sequence the samples. And interestingly, to that point, uh, Brian, when we had the original virus uh, and then the alpha variant and the other variants before Delta, we could hardly ever sequence the virus in the samples. There was so little there. Now, Mm. every one of them can be sequenced because there's so much. And the the key thing here is that it's a thousandfold more viral load. So when you get the chance of overriding vaccines even can occur. But moreover, the people who are unvaccinated are just spreading this like no other previous version of the virus. It's just so super contagious, unfortunately. And that's why it's causing real havoc and not as much yet in California, hopefully, but it certainly is in many other states in the country. And looking at the, you know, the data and seeing, you know, the, the prevalence of both of hospitalization with and without vaccination, I think it's really clear. And I, you know, I got the vaccine at UCSD. I think we had one of the best response. I was never more proud to be at UCSD. You know, we had, we had uh, vending machines with test swab kits. I could get it whenever I wanted. We had, you know, distance, we had mask, you know, we did it all. As soon as the vaccine was ready, I was one of the first people. I got my wife. And now it's like, I don't even know where to get one. You know, if you wanted to get one, uh, it's, it's, it seems like, you know, perhaps we have to revitalize that whole campaign. But I think UCSD and the chancellor and the med school and everybody and, and Scripps as well did a phenomenal job. And I want to thank you and in and, and the role that you played and also our chancellor, as I said. Um, and I'm not just saying that because he's my boss, but but anyway. <laughs> no, he's a good he's a good man. But I also think we're very lucky that we worked together in San Diego. There was no, yeah. you know, uh, sense of uh, rivalry. We we and the, the county, the San Diego County, I mean, three and a half million people, second largest in California. We got on this. And so it isn't perfect, but we actually are a model county um, like Seattle, uh, Kings County and a few others around the country that have managed this reasonably well. I mean, you, you know, you've got wastewater surveillance there on yep. campus. We're trying to stay ahead of it. Uh, the, you know, the one thing I regret Uh, here is that we didn't get the rapid home testing to every household in San Diego to show the rest of the country that that would be uh, so striking in terms of helping to manage. So anytime you're going out, you would be clear that you're not infectious. And we Mm -hmm. need that now more than ever because some vaccinated people are unknowingly uh, infected. 
And when, what do you make of it though? I have, you know, people on, you know, other side just to, just to have some potential pushback on some of the messaging that's been gotten, you know, if you have a vaccine, uh, if you're vaccinated, rather double vaccinated, it's it worked well. Um, you know, why should you have to wear a mask? And I, I hear that a lot. And uh, I just wanted to get your per, uh, personal take on it. Because I know you've been kind of atheistic politically, too, in that you've pushed back on big pharma in the past, famously against Merck and Vioxx. And now, you know, more recently, kind of just criticizing some of the current CDC messaging. Um, what do you make of that? If you were talking to someone who's bright and just say, this is the first, va-, just stating in fact, it's the first vaccine that you have to, you know, wear a mask after you got uh, vaccinated yeah, and it had some yeah. high efficacy and, and efficiency, as you point out in your interview with Sam. What do you make yeah, of that? Well, here you bring in a little physics with the aerosol transmission, right? And when you have a thousand fold more viral load, the chance of you being able to override um, a person who is doubly vaccinated is higher. We're seeing it. We're seeing these so-called breakthroughs and not just that they get a positive test, but they get symptoms and some get, you know, quite sick. Obviously, the chance of it is much lower than far lower than if you're unvaccinated. But it's all about the fact that this virus is distinctly diversion, is distinctly worse and different and more challenging. It's daunting. Um, compared with every prior version. And the other thing is it also has this quality of immune evasiveness. So whereas the prior uh, versions of the virus, the vaccine held up really well, here one dose is like placebo. You know, if you don't have the second dose, um, you got a lot of vulnerability. So basically the, the vaccines are leaking. Uh, the, the, the viral load is overwhelming people. And the other thing is, which is unanticipated. Now we'll get into the weeds of life science. We thought that our B cells and T cells were going to kick in these on-demand reserve cells and that we'd be good for years, like, you know, 10, 20 years. Now it looks like we're only good for a matter of months and we have to get boosters. And so it's becoming much more complicated. In terms of those boosters, you know, I've had friends of mine, actually physicians just saying like, oh yeah, just, I'm going to go down and, and I, I, and if this is misinformation, please correct me, but you know, that they would get another boost. They would just go and get another COVID shot, COVID vaccination. Is that advisable? Is that not recommend? I mean, if it's safe, in other words, they, they're the reasoning that these physicians have told me it's safe. We know it's almost you know, as, as effective as a vaccine has ever been made in human history. Um, as you pointed out, thanks to this immense ingenuity of people around the world, but especially people here locally. Uh, and yet, it's so safe. So why not just get a, a third, you know, wouldn't it be prophylactic in a sense? Yeah, I mean, I think it's still some unknowns, like, is this only for people of advanced age and immunocompromised? Is this an across-the-board thing? Is this, like, what timing? Is it six months, nine months? I mean, there's a lot of unknowns. So before we start, you know, getting to mm-hmm. third boosters, we're learning from Israel, which has started that campaign of a third uh, in the yeah. elderly population. But it's a little early to jump to that. Um, ideally, if, if you know this, this Delta wave could pass pretty quickly, and we won't have to worry about it so much. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, in some places, its rise is complemented, fortunately, by its rapid fall off. So if we see that, you know, then and if the virus isn't circulating high levels, then the need for the boosters will be forestalled, you know, and, and then we can look at it and think about it in the light of day rather than in a panic mode where we have insufficient data right now. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you a question that my audience had, but also I had, and um, and and actually it was brought to my attention by Andy Weir, 
the author of The Martian and more recently Project Hail Mary, which is about a virus that doesn't take over the earth. It takes over the sun. Anyway, he's a, he's a proud dropout of UCSD uh, in the computer science division where our mutual friend Rajesh Gupta connected you and me together. Mm-hmm. I thank him very much. Shout out to Rajesh. He's an unbelievable uh, scientist and, and influence on me. Uh, I want to ask you, um, is this, as Andy said, maybe the last pandemic? In other words, now that we have mRNA, mRNA, and we have you know 3D printing, we have CRISPR, we have blah, blah, blah. is this the last you know that we might it might be a, a side benefit of COVID that that we won't suffer from a global pandemic again? Well, I, I'm an optimist, uh, Brian, and I think it's possible that we could markedly reduce the chances that we'll have another pandemic if we have developed stockpiles of universal vaccines against all the candidate viruses. So basically, because of what we now can do with structural biology and with uh, CRISPR and, you know, all the tools that we have, we can basically take down all coronaviruses and other viruses that would likely yield a pandemic such that the moment we saw it, uh, it start in an outbreak, we would be, you know, at um, all over it and have the, uh, the tools to squash it so mm-hmm. that we would never get in this kind of situation again. But that relies on heavy investment in the life science to have those pan virus, all the candidates. There's a list of like five or six families. And we have the ability now, we're smart enough to know whether it's through natural antibody reverse engineering that people make these incredibly potent antibodies, super antibodies, or whether it's synthetic means, we could do this, but we have to fund it. We have to, you know, put the resources and the intellectual talent behind it. But I do think the chances will be blunted. It will never be zero. And it could be that the top five virus families that we think are, are it. And we, and we get a surprise, you know? So um, that's what we should be, aiming for right now is having preparation where we basically have a way to squash this from the get-go. Another question uh, from a listener um, or viewer on YouTube who has a name actually I chose, I was going to choose for my oldest son, uh, but his name is Stinky Piece of Cheese. Uh, And yet, and yet he asked a very, or she asked, I don't know, it could be a woman, uh, asked a very provocative and interesting question um, about the future of technology, not just AI, but uh, he asked, or she asked, other than ECG, pulse oximetry, galvanic response, temperature, and uh, blood insulin and other things, uh, bl- oxygenation, um, what other non-invasive sensors look promising to provide real-time specific patient data for input? Oh, I think it's immense, actually. Uh, just voice is a big one. Mm. Um, there's going to be uh, ability to... Uh, for breath, uh, to you know, all the being able to pick up all the organic uh, molecules in the person's breath. I mean, it's just unlimited. We have basically we have all these uh, exhaust fumes as, <laughs> as human machines that we are more than tapped. others. Some more than others. Yeah, some more than others that we haven't tapped into yet. So no, I think that the non-invasive sensor world is uh, is going to be rich, and we're just barely scratching the surface and stinky piece of cheese started with a few there, but there's a whole lot more really. That's right. And the stinkiness, the breath maybe could, could perhaps provide vital clues as to his or her health. Another uh, question from a listener 
second choice for a name uh, for one of my kids, uh, Zero Skull. Okay, <laughs> Zero Skull asks, um, is there any such thing as a typical human? I see online often, and maybe I've even seen you retweet this. You know, there'll be some study. You know, like coffee, more than three cups of coffee a day kills, you know, you with a hundred percent certainty in a hundred years, yeah. but in mice, you know, <laughs> it's always in mice. And, and we, by the way, I've, I've coined another one instead of just say mice, it's just say dust because dust is responsible for most of the like hoaxes and problems in astronomy that we see. But anyway, um, he's asking, does any human that you've ever encountered or examined meet the physiological, psychological, sociological definition of a, of a typical human? And if not, is that a problem? Yeah, well, I think that's the principle of individualized medicine, that every one of us is unique. Uh, biologically, anatomically, our environment, uh, um, you know, physiologically, every layer, we are unique. So that's why, in many respects, um, we, we, we try to dumb down medicine with the clinical trial. And the clinical trial, you know, there's, that's the sanctimonious clinical trial where you have 10 people out of 100 derive benefit, right? right? And then you treat everyone with that treatment. Well, what about the 90 that don't have benefit, right? So we have basically all these pills that people are taking every day, and we don't even know if they benefit because are they like the, the the five or the 10 out of 100 that do benefit? Or are they mm-hmm. like the 90 or the 80, 85 that don't? I mean, we we are so stupid. We have to be smarter than this because the waste is profound, right? And it isn't just the cost. It's also exposure to side effects and, you know, yeah. taking some pill for the rest of your life and so many. So we have to do better than this to understand. And that's part of the deep medicine principle is deep phenotyping, that we understand each person at this kind of multidimensional um, way. And, uh, you know, we, we can do that now. We just aren't doing it. Mm. Hmm. Question from a fourth-year medical student named Nicholas uh, Primiano. I can't believe that's his real name. His real name has <laughs> got to be, you know, like an oblong footballers. And anyway, now this is a real person with a real picture. Nicholas asks you, um, and this is related, I think, to your conversation with Sam Harris. Uh, you talked about the vaccine reporting system and how it's over-reporting adverse events by three orders of magnitude. This is according to him. I- I'm just taking his word for it. I have no reason to suspect that he wouldn't. But he said, is it okay uh, to exaggerate health issues in the name of greater good of public safety? And actually, this I've thought about this too. It was admitted not too long ago that the you know that some breast cancer um, advocacy group, you know, advocated that all women get mammograms or some Anyway, there was a controversy about mammograms. I remember very strikingly and secondhand smoke and what you did mention with Sam as an example of like something that, you know, is not really transmissible. Anyway, there was a long ago, the American Lung Association, you know, had statistics like, you know, you're 20 times more likely to die of secondhand smoke. And now we don't really talk about it because it was so successful. And obviously women getting early screening and surveillance for breast cancer is a net positive and people not smoking and not impacting people with secondhand smoke is a benefit. Now, the question I think Nicholas is asking is, you know, to what extent is it okay to, to exaggerate medical benefits in the name of public health? I, I know you're not yeah. a public, you know, necessarily. Well, but I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I think you're, you touched on mammography, and that's a great example because the benefits have been grossly exaggerated. Mm. So if you take 10,000 women, the prototypic risk at age 50, and you have them get a mammogram every year for 10 years, you find out that there's a 60% false positive rate. Yeah. With all these 
poor women that are told there's something abnormal. Many of them get biopsies. Some of them even get treated uh, in surgery. So you have all these false positives for the very small few people that you've helped, right? A few over the course of a decade. So when you exaggerate things, the implications from a public health standpoint are profound. It's kind of like the algorithm that goes into scale in people and there's Mm -hmm. a glitch in it and you can hurt a lot of people real quickly. That's what you can do if you exaggerate the benefits or the harms. Now, when I was talking about the the vaccine adverse event uh, recording system, that was mm-hmm. the same sort of thing as exaggerating the harms because none of these re- none of these reported things are are reviewed or adjudicated, and so a lot of them have nothing to do with the vaccine. In fact, most. So we have to be accurate again with this, whether it's you know a, a particular uh, intervention screening. Uh, the results of a treatment like the vaccines, all these things require accuracy. And when they're loose, we got problems. So last question from the audience uh, has to do with uh, whether or not, (laughs) I don't know why he's asking you this, but he's asking you, uh, is there an ontological, is there a moral imperative rather for humans to colonize other planets? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I listened to uh, Jeff Bezos on his recent uh, little trip, little adventure about how important it is and um, how it will be the way to save the planet and, you know, a lot of theoretical things, right? Uh, maybe, maybe uh, I can see it um, as a potential thing. I, I think the problem, and this is where, you know, I got involved a little bit um, with uh, the Kelly uh, brothers, the, the traveling in space for human beings, we're not fit. We're not fit to be. If you go hang out in the ISS for any undue period of time or try to take a, a little trip to Mars, it's going to really have a big hit on your body. And we don't know who are the right, what's the right genome and right people that are going to withstand that hit. I mean, humans weren't meant for this. So there's some trade-offs, Brian. I think yeah. there's some benefits potentially, but we haven't weighed the toll it takes on Scott Kelly when he was yeah. compared to his brother, Mark, who never left, you know. Uh, so it's an unknown. And I think we have some of these, you know, between Branson and Musk and, and Bezos, we have these incredible advocates, but I don't think we've carefully considered some of the trade-offs to the human toll on your body. Yeah. No, I agree. And just as a point of reference, I had Jessica Mayer, who's from the other Scripps Institution of Oceanography. I interviewed her live while she was on the ISS, and uh, she seemed to be doing well. She enjoyed her hair kind of floating around, but she she uh, answered questions from middle school and high school kids around the county. And then I had um, Lord Martin Reese, who's the Astronomer Royale and tells the queen her horoscope, I guess. But anyway, he he was on the show, and he said, yes, uh, Elon, Elon told me that he wants to die on Mars. And I said, I just hope it's not on impact. Um, <laughs> so we're going to go into the impossible, which is when I do uh, questions only for my members and subscribers. And I don't want to deny my non-members and non-subscribers the opportunity to hear just your last thoughts about um, about COVID, what this wave is likely to do, any imprecations, any implorations. Uh, what do you think? Uh, what would you like to leave the vast majority of my audience with today? Well, like I said, Brian, I'm an optimist, and I have watched the other countries where this wave, it was severe, but it passed through relatively quickly, shorter than prior. 
partly because the virus is so incredibly efficient, burns through populations, uh, and, and then it can't find hosts and it retreats. Partly because in some places we've had, you know, good vaccination to help give some line of defense. So I'm hoping that in the next several weeks it'll be passed. But I don't know what lurks after that. I, I don't know whether it'll it'll come back, uh, whether we'll see a worse variant. I'm hoping not. I mean, this is pretty darn bad, pretty yeah. damn bad. So let's just hope that we're over the biggest hump because eventually um, it, there is the, the worry that we could see a, a virus with even more immune evasiveness and make our vaccines look even weaker. Yeah. Um, so let's hope that we don't see that. Yeah. So we, I think we're both encouraging people if they meet the requirements to get vaccinated and uh, take the proper precautions and not be too, you know, I, th- I always think being an optimist is dangerous and being a pessimist is dangerous because they can both lead you to inaction. <laughs> but uh, but I want to thank you, uh, Dr. Eric Topol of the Scripps Institute and uh, Institution. I always uh, get the two of them, Scripps Research Institution. That's the way I'll remember it. I want to thank you so much. And if you'll uh, indulge me, uh, I have five more minutes of questions just for my members and audience called Into the Impossible. We'll ask them final big philosophical picture questions. But for now, Eric, thank you so much for going into the impossible. Thank you. Okay. First question I ask um, has to do with the far future for uh, for you personally. At the biblical age of 120, when you spring forth this mortal coil, um, <laughs> what ethical will, not material will, what ethics wisdom would you most like to communicate to your biological, but also your ideological heirs? Oh my gosh. That's a tough one, Brian. That would take more than our time together to come up with an answer. I wish. Let me think about that one. We'll, we'll do that okay. in the future. Maybe we'll do a part two. Okay. Yeah, last, two. Uh, next, next question is, uh, if you've ever seen 2001, a space odyssey, there are these monoliths. There are these structures that are kind of like time capsules. I want to ask you, what would you put on it to a time capsule that you knew would last a billion years to summarize the great technological, medical, you know, scientific heights that humanity has achieved? Is there anything in biology, chemistry, medicine? Well, I mean, you know, we talked about AI, but the genome editing, I mean, you mentioned CRISPR is the biggest thing to happen in life science uh, in in my 60 plus years of life. Um, And it's unlikely we're going to surpass that for some time. So the idea that we can, um, you know, engineer a genome, whether it's, you know, someone who's alive or an embryo, is uh, extraordinary to a sword, just like AI. And as you know, there's fusion of both, where you yeah. can make AI, uh, the AI can make CRISPR and genome editing better. So yeah. the, the question here is, can we, can we use it right? Can we, can we make, because we can change the species now. Right. And that's freaking scary, right? It's scary. Yeah. Yeah. There's an old joke where a doctor like yourself or like uh, Jennifer Dudna says, you know, I can do anything God can do. Oh, yeah. Can you make a man out of dust? And she says, yeah, let me just scoop up some dust. And he says, no, no, no. Get your own dust. Uh, <laughs> I made it myself. Okay. Last question, doctor, has to do with the past, not the future. Uh, if you could go back and tell your 20-year-old self some piece of advice that would give you the courage as Arthur C. Clarke said, to go into the impossible, uh, that's the only way to know the limits of what's possible. What would you give your 20-year-old self? What piece of advice or wisdom would you give yourself to give you the courage to go into the impossible as you have done? Well, you know, it's been, I guess, uh, modus operandus for me, which is, you know, tell like it is and um, just be ready that sometimes the people you're telling it to aren't going to like it or you. 
But at the end of the day, that's the right way to be. Uh, don't try to be a populist. <laughs> try to, you know, call it the balls and the strikes as they as they are. And if you do that um, over your lifetime of your career, no matter what walk of life you're in, I don't think you'll regret it. But it will lead, has led to me, in me, you know, some rough, rough patches. But, um, you know, that's perseverance uh, in, in, in truth telling is, is vital. Wow. Dr. Eric Topol, a real doctor, not like me. Uh, thank you so much wow. for spending so much of your valuable time uh, going into the impossible with me and my audience. It's been a real treat. Uh, same for me, Brian. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Thank you for listening to Into the Impossible with Professor Brian Keating. Please support the show by rating, commenting, sharing, and leaving reviews. We appreciate hearing from you, and it really helps keep our universe expanding. Watch our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating. That's D-R Brian Keating. And join our premieres Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific time. Follow Brian on Twitter and Medium and support us on Patreon at Dr. Brian Keating. For exclusive content, visit Professor Keating's website and sign up for his informative newsletter at briankeating.com. Into the Impossible is produced with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Produced by Stuart Valko and Brian Keating.